0: In this week's Shadow Talk, we try and dispel some of the current myths surrounding CVEs and patching priorities. Two members of the DS security engineering team join me to provide a strategic view of vulnerabilities and experts, and share their ideas on how defenders can more effectively approach their patch management responsibilities. All this to come on this week's Shadow Talk. Hello and welcome to Shadow Talk. Joining me this week, we have Richard Gold. Hi there. Hi, Richard. It's good to have you back. And introducing Simon Hall. Simon is a senior security engineer here at Digital Shadows, and he works alongside Richard on a daily basis. Hi, Simon. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you both here. So before we get into the nitty-gritty, I think a good place to start would be in defining some terms. So we've got vulnerabilities and we've got exploits. These two terms are often used interchangeably, but in reality, they're very different and understanding the difference between them is really crucial for understanding what's a significant risk to an organization. So to start, let's define each of these. Who'd like to help me out?
1: I can uh, start with that, if you'd like. So, vulnerabilities and exploits. Vulnerabilities are generally considered to be a theoretical flaw in a piece of software, in the case that we're talking about software vulnerabilities mainly. So that could be something like a memory safety issue, input validation, privilege escalation, race conditions, side-channel attacks. All these are examples of vulnerabilities. Now, the rubber really, re- really meets the road when we start to talk about exploits. And exploits are essentially a proof that a vulnerability exists. An exploit is the practical implementation of the taking advantage of a vulnerability. So an exploit will then give you code execution, will escalate your privileges. And that is really the evidence that you need to show that a particular vulnerability really is as severe as you thought it was.
0: All right, now that we have our terms, let's set the scene when it comes to discussion of vulnerabilities, particularly what we're seeing in the threat intelligence space. So obviously a big challenge for security teams is how to prioritize what patches they need to roll out. But one of the big problems is that a lot of vulnerabilities and CVEs are being created and reported, which makes it really overwhelming for organizations and their security teams. Now, there are a variety of different approaches being championed in the threat intelligence space at the minute, to help remediate this issue. One thing we're seeing a lot of is the need to look at mentions and discussions of CVEs online, particularly on criminal locations and chat channels. The thinking here is that this will give a good indication of what CVE threat actors are looking to exploit and which ones will become the biggest threats in the immediate future. Now, there are other approaches which try and use algorithms and machine learning to try and predict what vulnerabilities will be most likely exploited. Now, I'm sure there are many specific use cases for these, for these type of approaches. However, I think what we'll see today in this discussion is that this may not be the most appropriate or even efficient way of going about it. Now, this is a topic that we've all been discussing quite a lot of late, and I'm excited I've got both Richard and Simon here to provide what's an alternative view on CVEs and patching. So a good way to frame this conversation is maybe to look at how exactly vulnerabilities are being exploited in the wild. Richard, what can you tell us about that?
1: Well, in our research, we tend to find that there's a limited subset of software which is most appealing to attackers. Now, when we talk about exploitation in the wild, we're really coming down to two main types of exploitation. That's remote code execution to gain that initial foothold into a target organization. And then there's privilege escalation, which is then how an attacker, once they're inside, can elevate their privileges to carry out post-exploitation activities, for example, dumping credentials. So, when we look at the types of software which are most often exploited for that remote code execution to gain the initial foothold, we see Web applications like content management systems, WordPress, Joomla, Apache Struts, these kinds of things being aggressively attacked. And on the Office application side of things, Microsoft Office is still the main target there. Also other software like Adobe Reader for PDFs. And these really form the core alongside Browsers like Internet Explorer, Firefox, and the associated plugins Adobe Flash, Silverlight, Java. Now, beyond that is, of course, a lot of other possibilities, and there are one or two really rare exceptions like vulnerabilities in Windows Network Services, which were exploited by Eternal Blue quite recently, or MSO 867, if you are. Uh, A dinosaur like myself so this is really the the main targets we see for exploitation by threat groups and also by drive-by commodity malware threats
2: yeah i mean just to to jump in on that i think going back um a little bit down to kind of patch management and what people should uh, start looking at within their organisation. Obviously with CVs, you've got these CPS scores so and various other bits and pieces to, to try and identify how much risk a particular vulnerability may give your organisation. Uh, but this, this definitely differs based on each organisation and what they should be focusing on. And I think mean, it comes back to something that Richard has touched on before on the previous podcast which is asset management as well. So knowing what you have um, so there may be a, a lot of vulnerabilities out there that to provide a, a lot of hype. So you get the branded vulnerabilities, and you know these go back to Heartbleed, Shellshock, and so forth. Um, but when they're actually they're coming back to the most recent vulnerabilities, so we're looking at Meltdown and Spectre, for instance. Uh, these were heavily hyped branded vulnerabilities, logos, websites, and else. Um But they they didn't really fulfil their that kind of hype um, as such. So, I mean, people looking at these and everyone's running out to try and patch everything, um, you know, and, and shutting down services or whatever else with uh, fear. But in the end of the day, there's there's no real exploitation of these particular vulnerabilities out there. Uh, so it's, it's really, it's difficult for organizations to know what they should be patching. Um, and the, the problem is you've got these branded vulnerabilities, uh, which are just providing a lot of hype and people are trying to patch the
0: wrong things in the organisation, I think, a lot of times. So as computer network exploitation has become a standard tool for cyber criminals or international threat actors, a market has developed around the buying and selling of exploits. Now, why is this significant to the discussion of vulnerabilities and exploits?
1: I think one of the most interesting things around the exploit market, it gives us insight into how difficult things are to compromise, and how much certain types of software are valued by attackers. If we look at the price lists, which are public, we can see that there are some some companies which are offering up to $3 million US for a remote jailbreak, zero click, in iOS. Now, there's obviously questions about whether or not they really pay out up to that really high amount. But it's interesting. I mean, other companies offer up to one and a half million US for an iOS zero-click remote jailbreak. So we're talking anyway in the millions of dollars. So we really see how valuable these bugs are to certain organizations. And then we see as well that they're targeting... Browsers, browser plugins Content management systems popular forum software Interestingly now I've seen one where they're offering not a lot of money But some money for router bugs as we saw for example with the recent Microtech Attack that was doing the rounds so it's I think it's very interesting in terms of how we look at the priorities we can see how much Attackers are really willing to pay out for bugs in certain software. We can see which types of software are attacked. And it gives us an idea of how also, as I mentioned, how simple things are to attack. So we can see that some of the, the these web apps which are internet facing current bug bounty or these exploit brokers that are looking to pay you know up to 10K for for a bug. So that's a far cry from, for example, browser or these uh, mobile operating system bugs. So clearly, they see these are easy to get into and also not so high value. However, maybe it's interesting to an attacker as an initial foothold from which they would pivot into the rest of the organization, taking advantage of other flaws and misconfigurations along the way. So it's an interesting insight into what the attackers are, are doing behind the scenes.
2: The markets for exploits is quite interesting um, because you'll see that, as you say, a lot of money are going into some of the purchases for these, um, but they're not the ones that tend to make out into uh, mass exploitation. So mass organisations are worrying about this sort of stuff, but at the end of the day, you know, they're spending one million plus on an exploit. They're not generally going to burn it on a a retail organisation or something else. So they're going to be more targeted until they actually reached their end of their life and become more popular and they're actually a source code for that's actually leaked online. Um, So, I mean, if you look back at the the NSA toolkits, the Shadow broker stuff, and as you said, the the Eternal Blue, Eternal Romance, obviously NSA would have used these for a long time ago for more targeted attacks, and it's only when that source code has been leaked uh, that has actually come into kind of mass targeting of organisations of WannaCry and NotPetica and so forth. So I think while it's interesting to to see the prices that some of these exploits are actually fetching on the markets, uh, it's not something that a lot of organisations need, really need to worry about, in my, my opinion, to be honest.
0: Yeah, and Richard, one of the very interesting points that you've made to me in the past is that in the majority of attacks, attackers don't even use exploits to achieve their aims. Now, Simon, you've probably got a great perspective here as well from your pen testing experience. Can you guys tell me a bit more about that?
1: Sure thing. So when I've done trainings and when we review APT tradecraft from different reports and different sources, we see very often that the attackers either don't feel the need to use exploits or they feel that exploits are unnecessary or overly complicated or unreliable to achieve their goals. You see that there are ways to gain that initial foothold through usage of techniques which don't rely on exploitation. So, For compromising network services, very often weak or default credentials will get you very far. Many of these Systems that we mentioned, CMSs, forums, these kinds of things have admin panels which you can get onto with, um, as I say, with either weak or default credentials, depending on how the how well that they're configured. And from the Office document side of things, there's a lot of different ways to gain code execution through the usage of macros in Microsoft Office, through the usage of DDE or only embedded objects, as well, for Office. PDF, not so much as it used to be, but previously things like JavaScript, which were supported by default in the readers, were another ways to get code execution, and even just straight up dropping JavaScript onto an endpoint was and is still effective. So These rely a little bit on social engineering. They rely also a bit on the way that Office and other applications are typically configured in organizations. But this is a very reliable way for attackers to gain code execution. And the same with privilege escalation. You don't necessarily need to have an exploit to gain system in Windows. You can look for other opportunities, such as unquitted service paths, scheduled tasks, and so on. So there's lots of different ways for attackers to operate which don't rely on exploitation. And exploits get patched. The bugs that the exploits exploit do get patched, and people do roll them out, and they do close that avenue. So relying on other techniques, which are more about how software is typically misconfigured or simply not configured in many organizations is a very reliable go-to strategy.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, the, when it comes down to misconfigurations and weak configurations, um, it's definitely one of the primary entry points into an organisation. And I think uh, another key area would be credential harvesting with phishing emails. Um, so, see a phishing email comes in, someone follows a link through to uh, an Office 365 page or whatever else. Uh, and they enter their, their domain credentials. Um, and this can then be reused for either external services that have been found, RDP servers, or, or whatever else. Um, but I think credential harvesting is, is definitely a big piece of, of kind of getting into an organization, for instance, without the use of exploitation. But it all comes down to social engineering at the end of the day, I think.
1: Social engineering is surprisingly reliable as well. I think that's really one of my takeaways from the work that we've done in the past, it really, it just works. It really is effective. And that's why so many attackers just use it. Maybe even, they don't even bother looking at using exploits. Just know that effective social engineering will get the job done.
0: So having said all this, where is the risk for organizations when it comes to exploits? It's all well and good saying many of the current approaches to this topic are slightly off the mark. I mean, what we're hearing now from you guys is that so actors often don't even bother using exploits. They don't see the need for it. They can achieve their aims through other means. What would you suggest instead in terms of a, a strategy to dealing with vulnerabilities and exploits if you're an organization, if you're a defender?
2: I, I think mainly, uh, again, reiterating one of the previous points is asset management. So making sure you have a, a good inventory list of all of your assets. Um, so not just... Uh, IT system servers and so forth, but also software um, and applications that you're using throughout your organization, um, whether that's CMSs or whether that's down to your office deployments, antivirus uh, deployments, and everything else. So, when uh, a CVE is released and um, classifying a vulnerability, you can easily go and check to see if you're using that. Um, so, when uh, the next branded vulnerability comes out and there's a web page, there's a logo, it one's fear-mongering when everyone's scared, uh, you can easily check through your asset inventories and you can identify whether you're actually gonna be affected by this at any point. Yeah,
1: I fully agree with that. I think as well that it's worth concentrating the efforts on the types of software which are most likely to be exploited. So, in the terms of a Windows environment, making sure that Windows and Office are patched Also making sure that Office is appropriately hardened for your environment. In some cases, it's not possible to just disable macros. They can be used for a variety of business cases. Microsoft Office does provide trusted zones and other technologies to allow you to manage that effectively. So that is definitely worth exploring. I think also, So for the Linux side of things, making sure that if there's a critical vulnerability in a content management system which you're running, that you know that you can patch that promptly. And also to keep an eye out, and that's something that we do here, on when an exploit goes from being a private exploit used by one or a few APT groups against select targets to when it becomes public. So it either ends up as a proof of concept code on GitHub or a Metasploit module or something like this. And then these are very rapidly incorporated into exploit kits in the case of browser bugs or phishing kits in the case of Office applications. And then this is where the greatest risk is, in my opinion, to, the, to an organization. The targeting for these exploit kits and these phishing kits is much broader than the more boutique APT group targeting, and they will be pushing these exploits aggressively against targets. This is, I think, where the the most danger is. So when this happens, you need to be prepared and to be able to patch those most critical applications as quickly as possible. One other thing I'd like to say is that whilst we're talking about how you can get into an organization without using exploits, it still is really important to patch and to prioritize patching of those vulnerabilities which are targeted by not only APT groups but also commodity threats, and Also, there are cases where you can't patch, and so that's why something like Microsoft Emmet, the Enhanced Mitigation Experience Toolkit, is very important. Whilst in Windows 10, it's mainly built-in, you don't really need it so much as an add-on, if you're running older versions of Windows, like Windows 7, this is a valuable additional feature to mitigate against certain types of exploitation.
0: And I believe that's all we have time for today. This is no doubt a topic we'll come back to later this year. As we can see, there's a lot here to work through, and I'm sure the vulnerability debate will continue for the foreseeable future. Richard and Simon, thank you very much for joining. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Have a good week. For more research and commentary from the Digital Shadows team, visit resources.digitalshadows.com.